Hi, and welcome to a podcast from Hope Springs Church Coventry. For more, please find us on Facebook at Hope Springs Church or on Twitter, we're at Hope Springs Cobb. Thank you and enjoy. Okay, we're rolling. It's all right. Um, I'm just going to pray briefly to start. Um, thank you, Jesus, that you are here, you're with us, um, and thank you that you are full of love um, and that you love us. And we just pray that um, we would be aware of your presence this morning, God, and aware of you speaking to us, and our hearts would be open. Amen. 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 So uh, I'm going to be talking about generosity today. I did tell Steve that I was going to talk about unicorns um, because he's not here, so I was just going to change topic, but um, uh, I won't do that because I think it would be unreasonable. And I'm not not sure how important it would be to us to understand more about unicorns. And I'm not an expert on them, so it would be bad in many ways. Um, So over the past uh, three weeks, well, this is the fourth week, we've been talking about the economy of God um, and... Last week we had the discussion as a community, and then we discussed discussed it more on Wednesday, which I think everyone here was at. Oh no, you weren't. You missed it, Luke. So yeah, we talked about loads of really important stuff on Wednesday, um, which is really hard to summarise and repeat. So unfortunately, I think you've just missed out on. My God, with the kids. On that. Um, So all of that has been within the broader theme of abundance um, over kind of past three, four months or so. Um, so I'm just going to recap briefly what Sai and Steve talked about, um, just so that we're kind of in that, uh, familiar with that context. Um, so Sai talked about bread, and hopefully I do justice to this, you're not going to disagree with me, um, and its symbolic nature in the Bible. Um, so bread is used by Pharaoh um, as a means of oppressing people, so he accumulates it, um, and then he was able to strip nations of all of their possessions, their land, and even their personal freedom. But by contrast, God's bread, the manna from heaven, was freely given to Israel in the wilderness. Um, It was given without any discrimination, abundantly, but it had this built-in caveat that it couldn't be accumulated. So it was like automatically anti-Pharaoh's way of doing things. If you tried to store it up, it would rot, grow mould, maggots overnight. So you just couldn't use it to Um, oppress or exploit or manipulate other people and that's the way that's kind of this really interesting picture of God's economy everyone has enough freely given freely received can't be accumulated or harnessed for the purpose of exploiting others there's no scarcity there's no fear um, there's no coercion or oppression and then Steve continued developing that theme talking about our heart attitude in God's, God's economy so he drew a distinction between um, you can have like, apparently charitable acts and lifestyles, uh, but it doesn't necessarily mean you've got a generous heart. And equally, you could have apparent greed and wealth, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you are greedy and wealthy. It could just be wise stewardship. So the outward appearance uh, doesn't necessarily reflect on the inward workings. It's possible to be poor, still have pride in your heart. It's possible to give to charity and still be doing it 
motivated by your own reputation. Um, it's possible to be rich, have high-value possessions, but still be humbly generous and facelessly giving to people. Um, Jesus made it clear that outward appearance is deceiving, and Paul said that like, in all of our virtuous doings and activity, if it's not grounded in love, it's worthless. Um, <coughs> that's actually a really strong thing to say, and I think sometimes we we kind of don't pay as much attention to that as we ought to. Um, like how important it is that all of that stuff is rooted and grounded in love um, and not in any other motivation. Um, so in all of that, what's clear to me is that God's economy is very different to the way the kind of natural world economy works. Um, in the world economy, we're taught to work hard, get good qualifications, climb the career ladder, um, save, invest wisely, buy a house, buy a car, maybe buy a bigger house. And none of those things are intrinsically bad or unhealthy or anti-kingdom, but they are anti-kingdom if we make them the kingdom. Um, the kingdom of God or the, or the economy of God, and I'm using those terms interchangeably a bit, although economy is kind of a subset of the kingdom, is not an economy of hard work, it's an economy of rest. And economy and rest are not two words that we easily put together. Um, they're kind of opposite spectrum in our normal thinking. So that doesn't mean that we shouldn't work hard, but it does mean that we should ask ourselves, why am I working hard? What is it for? Who is it for? Is it because I'm afraid or am I at rest? Am I driven by fear or am I motivated by love in what I'm doing? If you are afraid, and I know that it's something that all of us probably fall into at various points, um, get, it's very hard to not get into that cycle at any point in your life. This isn't to condemn. It's not about being in sin or otherwise about, ha- about having fear in your life. But it's becoming aware of that so that we know where we are and we can allow God to join us there um, so that we don't fall into that rhythm and, and just never get out of it. It's like an insatiable cycle. Um, and hopefully some of what I talk about today will offer you some kind of respite, some ways out of that cycle. So the, econo- the economy of God is not an economy of hard work, it's an economy of rest. The economy of God is not an economy of accumulation, it's an economy of jubilee and freedom. So you might have heard of the term jubilee, um, there's probably, well there's a church called Jubilee Church in this city. Um, but biblically, it's, uh, it was a particular practice um, in the Jewish history um, where every 50 years, all land and property would be returned to its original owners. Uh, it's not practiced anymore in Israel, as far as I know, but it was part of the Levitical law in early Israel. So just try and imagine that for a minute. It, 50 years is quite a long time. But it's also quite short when it comes to property ownership because most of us live for longer than 50 years. So at some point in your life, everything you own goes back to whoever you bought it from. It's quite unnerving, kind of uprooting in terms of how we, um, how we deal with property possession and the nature of possession and things like ownership that we, we feel like it's kind of ours, that we've worked for it, we hold on to it. But this idea of jubilee kind of forces people to hold things with an open hand. Um, everything you bought is returned, gone. But you're not left with nothing because it's not just what you've gained that gets given back, but it's also what you've lost that gets returned. 
Um, so, so rather than losing everything, it's just it's more about like a reset back to kind of equality, equity, and the starting point of jubilee is that everyone is is kind of a, a, an even distribution, um, an equitable distribution of wealth. So every fifty years, you go back to that. No one ever gets chance to build up this kind of centuries-old empire. Um, <clears throat> everyone is reset. You and your friends, you and your enemies, those who were lazy during that time, those who worked hard, those who got lucky, those who risked too much and were unlucky, those who were addicted and wasted everything, those who were self-controlled and saved, the landlords, the homeless, everyone reset back to equal. I wonder how that would change our attitudes and our motivations and how it would affect our drivenness, um, knowing that at some point everything would be stripped away, or equally knowing that Whatever inequality or hardship we're facing, there's always a light on the horizon. It's always coming back. So the economy of God's not a private property empire, it's a shared kingdom. And it's not exclusive, it's inclusive. And I'm ask, I've asked myself a question in preparing this, how inclusive is it? And I think quite often when we think about Christianity and inclusivity, we think of it in terms of who gets into heaven. And there's different understandings of that and people... Uh, in different places on the spectrum some people think perhaps like you know there are certain sins that would not get you into heaven other people might be more towards universalism that everyone gets in at some point um, but either way we can end up with quite a, an exclusive list pretty quickly um, and sometimes for us we're not even sure if we're on the list um, but if we think in different terms try and bring it to the modern day just imagine if Jesus lived in this city, so if he had a house on your street, and who would be welcome in his house, just like to come around for dinner? Just think of it in those terms. Would Jesus turn someone away if they knocked on his door? I'm going to answer the question for you. Um, so he dined with Zacchaeus, the tax collector. It's a really like well-known example. Modern-day equivalent is quite hard for us to understand because of the nature of the culture at the time but it could be someone like a, a high interest payday loan business owner like Wonga or something like that someone who we would probably sh- agree is a bit of a douche um, <laughs> I don't know who it is sorry Mr Wonga Praying, but like those, those systems are built to prey on the poorest and most vulnerable yeah. in, their, in their worst time of need um, or perhaps someone like a corrupt people trafficker um, forcing refugees into like a lifetime of debt and servitude just to escape the suffering that they're already uh, under, underneath. So that kind of person, not only did Jesus not turn them away, but he went to him, he went to his house. Um, elsewhere, we see Jesus using um, Samaritans in his parable as a, as a kind of hero figure, someone who looks after others. And also... Um, in John 4, there's the story of Jesus talking to the woman at the well, who was also a Samaritan. In the context of Samaritans, you probably heard it said before, it, the Jews and the Samaritans didn't really get on. They were kind of very um, anti-each other. They didn't talk to each other. They had very different beliefs, and it was quite a fundamental rift between them. So he shouldn't have been talking to her, and also she was a woman. Another reason he probably shouldn't have been talking to her. Um, but I'll just read a bit of John 4 where this story happens so we can look at it a bit more. So John 4 verse 1. You don't have to turn to it if you don't want to. It looks like no one's bothering anyway. Um, 
Uh, I'll read it out, it's fine. I'll do the work. Um, Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptising more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptised, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now, he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? And in brackets, his disciples had gone into town to buy food, so it was just him and her. Um, So just pause there. Anyone notice whose well this was? Jacob's. So, do you know who Jacob met at a well in Genesis 29? His wife. His wife, Rachel. So there's this interesting parallel here between... In, in Israel's history, Jacob went to a well and met his future wife. Here, Jesus is going to a well and meeting who? A Samaritan adulteress, not his future wife. Um, I'm not suggesting a kind of Da Vinci Code conspiracy here where Jesus gets married to the Samaritan woman and there's like a new <laughs> bloodline, but I'm talking about God's economy. Jacob met Rachel, who was his cousin, at a well. Um, they married, and their offspring were literally the tribe of Israel. Um, Israel were, as we know, the chosen people, very specially blessed. And although they weren't necessarily intended to be, they were in many ways very exclusive. They were the tribe. Um, But now Jesus is at the same, well, not the same well, but at Jacob's well, so connected to that lineage. And he meets a Samaritan woman. He doesn't marry her, but in a, for want of a better phrase, he does kind of impregnate her. Um, He sows a seed, which causes her to become an evangelist. Um, you could say that they have spiritual children together. But this time it's not a single exclusive bloodline tribe. It's inclusive of the hated, the despised, the sinful, because she was an, an adulteress as well, and he even talks about that too. He makes it clear that he's, he's not ignoring the fact that the, the, the sh- these two shouldn't go together. He's very aware of it, but he doesn't care. He doesn't let that get in the way. So from verse 9, I'll carry on reading. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for, asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So, picture of the economy of God again. It's more than enough, this well of eternal life. It's abundant, it's eternal, and it's being given to or being offered to the outcast, the despised. It's indiscriminate, it's inclusive in ways that challenges doesn't care for maintaining a good reputation you know he's doing all this by himself it's kind of quite like he could get in a lot of trouble to, to be talking to this kind of woman by himself and later on in the story jesus chooses her uh, just a few more lines down as a fitting recipient for the revelation that he's the messiah and it is pretty much the only time in the whole new testament that he makes the claim clearly quite often he kind of sort of admits to it but to her he says I am he, the Messiah.
it's astounding that he does it to her. In early church tradition, um, the woman has a name, Fatina, which means light, um, and she's said to have gone on to evangelise so many people and brought them to the faith that she was considered equal to the apostles. It's quite significant, the way, what he does and, and how it changes her life. And it's a perfect example, I think, of God's economy in action. It's undeserved abundance given, indiscriminately opened up, and then she, the recipient, then takes it and pours out, and it's undeservedly given and indiscriminately abundant to others as well. You could describe it, I think Sire mentioned this when he taught, as a kind of pay-it-forward approach, um, which if if you've ever read the book or watched the film is a really kind of powerful picture of how the economy of God could look within a community, I think. Um, so that was all to recap um, what Sai and Steve talked about. Um, but I'm going to be talking a bit more specifically about generosity, trying to make uh, get a bit more practical in terms of how we behave to enact that same nature. So I'm going to read from Acts 4, which I mentioned on Wednesday that, I might be, that I'd be talking about. If you want to go there, it's Acts 4, verse 32. It says, <coughs> All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in, in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, we're a Barnabas community, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. So I'm going to pick out a few things from that passage. First of all, one heart and mind and everything was shared. It says the grace of God was so powerfully at work not that there were powerful healings and prophecies and miracles going on but that there were no needy persons among them that's how that's the demonstration of this power in this passage and there's so much in that um, that it's difficult to know kind of where to start but I think foremost I don't think that I'm, I'm I'm definitely not saying that this is a model that can be copied for success I know that there are church groups who do try and do this having this kind of common purse but I think it's important that we understand the the order that things come in. So the conditions of this environment are that all the believers were in one heart and mind. So you can't just jump to sharing every physical possession in common. It has to start with one heart and mind. The oneness that Jesus prayed for his disciples, that's the kind of the starting point. And it's really not an easy place to get to. I'm sure we all are not there <laughs> at the moment. There's a lot of things that we probably disagree about, but um, we're on the way, hopefully. So if, if you were to uh, try and apply this kind of shared thing as a top-down approach to common ownership, where everyone's required to sell and give all that they have, I think it would fall apart pretty quickly um, because it's necessarily born out of freedom from the bottom up and it's held together by grace and love. I think that sacrificial giving can help to develop that environment. So by sharing what we have and by giving to each other, it can help to encourage us to be more single-minded and more oneness 
but it's always it's always two way. You can't just do one and expect the other to happen. It's kind of a, a gradual process, and it can't be shortcut. Um, one thing that's come out of the discussions that we had uh, last Sunday and this week um, over finances, in particular, in the church, is kind of a need for greater depth and vulnerability in the area of finance as a community which I think is moving us in a direction towards that kind of oneness um, of kind of one heart and one mind that kind of extreme unity obviously requires exceptional levels of trust and integrity um, and they don't grow overnight but God is willing and able to work with us on that um, because it is the way his economy looks the next thing that's within that passage there were no needy persons among them so something that struck me about that was its its apparent inwardness so the passage isn't talking about how there was so much grace and power that they were going out and feeding all the poor it's that there were no needy persons among them Um, it's common for us to talk about being outward focused um, so that we avoid becoming like a self-help club and you know just bless me but i think we can miss something if we're not careful and the point here is not that giving should always and only be to the people within our community. Uh, there's loads of examples, as we know, of the disciples. They did give to the poor, and they did go around doing that. Um, but I think it's telling us that we shouldn't neglect those closest to us, actually. Not even just... It shouldn't just be that we don't neglect those closest to us. It should, we should make sure that they're looked after. It should actually be a priority, because outward action should flow from the abundance of our inward condition. We understand this individually, but when we think of ourselves as a community, as a body, it's the same. So we would say of ourselves, you know, you can't can't love people if you don't love yourself. Um, That's kind of like a common adage. Um, But I think it's the same in the community. So we can't expect to be be good at, to be uh, effective at loving people outside of our community if if we're unable to do that within the community. So I think it's kind of a, an important starting point. It's an important foundation for us that we are able to see each other's needs and meet those needs. Um, and that, doing that, giving, meeting needs within the community is necessarily relational. So it's always more than just money, objects. Um, it's continually developing deeper trust and reliance on one another. Bearing one another's burdens, I think, is a way that it's often noted in, in the New Testament when someone gives to you that you're in relationship with as opposed to a random person it leaves a mark it can be a lot harder to accept than from a random outsider because it raises issues of trust and position and power and indebtedness and I think that's exactly why it's powerful because it raises those issues which means they can be faced and wrestled with rather than just left below our defences so both the giver and the receiver, giver and the receiver, have to do so with a level of humility and integrity to avoid it, to avoid it becoming divisive, to avoid it coming between them. Um, just a little story. Uh, when Lizzie and I first met, some of you might have heard this story before, um, she was still a student and I was in work. So naturally, since I was earning money and I was also the man, I did the chivalrous thing and I paid for everything. Um, went out on dates, uh, going to the cinema, bought her gifts, going on holiday even um, with my family. 
But what Lizzie didn't know was that I was absolutely terrible with money and basically I was just putting it all on a credit card and getting deeper and deeper into debt. To an extent, I meant well, um, but in reality, my pride was getting in the way of better judgment because I wanted to be the provider. I wanted to be that person in the relationship because that's the way it's done, Um, regardless of the fact that I couldn't be it because I didn't have the resources to do it. And that kind of pride can work the other way too, where we reject help for similar reasons. Um, But the end of the story is that when we then got married, um, the roles reversed because I went back to university and Lizzie now started working. Um, And we had completely shared finances. Not everyone does it that way, but we did, just like a shared account. And so suddenly she became aware of all of my debt, um, which was now her debt, (laughs) because I wasn't paying it. So she eventually paid for all of those dates and treats and holidays, um, plus interest. And it's kind of funny now, looking back on it, but it wasn't easy at the time. I had to accept discipline, not from her, but, you know, discipline. I had to accept that I needed to be disciplined with money and to a great extent just submit myself to her management of the finances because I recognised that I was terrible at it Uh, and in turn she had to forgive me for effectively deceiving her and putting her in that position Um, but the reconciliation of that brought us closer together Um, I had to learn to receive from her and not be the provider and she had to give to me and learn to do so without judging me or categorising me as some kind of liability for her Um, so she had to hold on to trust Um, and that was vital because we were married it's not always vital in a community like this because we're not all married to each other but um, the encouragement is for us to make it more important to us Um, the giving within a relationship like that is, is very different to just giving outwardly because if a random outsider had paid off my debts in that situation neither of us would have learned anything if I just if my credit card had just been paid off yeah. then she wouldn't have learned how to forgive me to be reconciled and I wouldn't have learned that this was this was a, a bad situation that this affected someone that I loved mm-hmm. but working through it together brought much greater oneness so hopefully that will help you see a bit, a bit, clear, a bit clearer um, how giving within a community is different to giving outside of a community, the, di- the difference that it makes. The act of giving always costs you something. Um, but the encouragement here with relational giving is to let that cost be more than just a bank balance cost. That it's, it's giving something of yourself. It's sharing in a powerful way. At one level... It's very good to give money to charity, um, putting coins in the pot or setting up a direct debit. It's fantastic, and someone somewhere is benefiting from your sacrifice. And if you do take one thing away, just one thing, I would say do not stop doing that. It is good. I'm not saying it's bad. So definitely keep doing that. It's a good thing to do. At another level, you can, rather than giving money, you can give things. Um, So rather than just cash, you can... For example, like we do with Carriers of Hope or like we're doing with the VIP event, you buy the actual things that meet the person's need. Yeah. Um, I find that quite a powerful thing to do um, because in the act of buying all that stuff, it's quite an unusual thing sometimes to go into the supermarket. I'm sure you've all done this and yeah. buy 20 bags of spaghetti. Yeah. You kind of feel a little bit weird, sometimes a little bit proud of yourself. <laughs> um, 
But the, the last time I did it, I was very aware of like the person in front of me and the stuff that's on there on the counter for their for their purchases and just how much of it just looks so frivolous mm. and it's exactly the stuff that would be in my bag if yeah, i was yeah. shopping for myself but because i'm just i don't always do it just as a, as a unique shop but on this occasion i was because i just had tins of tomatoes and spaghetti it was just like man like the perspective of this is this is for 15 20 families that's just like for one person it looks like a nice yeah. night nice night in and they're probably spending twice as much as what i am as well Equally, the 15 bags of spaghetti that I'm buying are probably about the same cost as like one bottle of craft beer that I would drink on a Friday night. It's, you know, and thankfully, I don't think God's telling me not to buy beer. Um, I think. Uh, but, but the point here is it, it encourages a greater level of responsibility and reflection on that. And reminds me that I've got a lot to be thankful for and just shifts the perspective um, which over time will change me and maybe I will stop buying expensive beer I don't know I'm getting getting negative feedback on that <laughs> we've got to be open to this guys um, so you can give money you can give money which is great giving to charity don't stop doing that you can give things that's also great don't stop doing that but then there's this other level uh, which is relational giving, intimate generosity, where you're also giving something of yourself. It can definitely take the form of money. Um, it can also be things. It can also be time. It can be a listening ear, a conversation, or a hug. It can be a phone call, or if you're planning on giving to me, not a phone call, a text. Um, <laughs> if it's from me, it could be that I answer the phone call when someone, someone calls me. Um, and a lot of that sounds kind of really, well, isn't that just relationship? Uh, it's just kind of very natural and easy, and in some ways it is. But what I am talking about here is re- it's not just relationship, it's relational giving. So there's something intentional about it. Um, and it, it does carry the same prerequisite as the other types of giving, so giving money, giving things, in that it costs you something. So what I'm talking about here is not just easy relationship with the people that you like, um, for it to be relational giving, it, it is, there is a cost. So it, perhaps it's not just a conversation, it's a conversation with someone that perhaps you don't really get on that well with, or the person who's frequently stood alone at the social events, or who's just really awkward to talk to, um, or is boring, um, or you, a conversation where you make a real effort to listen more than you talk. There's kind of a, a consciousness and intentionality of it. Um, Or perhaps it's not just putting food in a bag, but it's taking it to someone's front door or inviting them through your front door. Um, Perhaps it's not just putting some money in an envelope for someone, but it's taking the time to develop a relationship with them and actually understand what they need through conversation, time and trust. And building the relationship to the point where they can be vulnerable enough to tell you that need and can receive it from you without it creating a problem. Um, And I think that's not an easy thing um it's very easy just to give outside kind of anonymously and not think about the consequences of it it's a lot harder to give to people that you know face to face and see the results of it and 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 worry about whether they're spending it properly or are they abusing this gift that i've given them and and or or the challenge of it kind of putting you in a more powerful place or in a weaker place to receive something all of that tension makes it a lot more difficult but 
Acts 4 is encouraging us that we need to be that kind of community. So, I said earlier on that if you find yourself in the situation where you're trapped partially in the in this kind of economy, the world's economy that's kind of fear, the cycle of accumulation, um, I'm hoping that there's some respite here in what I'm saying. And I think relational giving, the encouragement to be involved in that, um, gives you gives you respite in two ways. The first one is is the cost. So inevitably, relational giving will always cost you some money um, at some point. Yes, conversation is good, but but don't let it just be that. People people do have needs, and whether you buy stuff to to meet that need or whether you give them money to meet that need. There's always going to be opportunities for that. Um, people always have need. And so it will cost you something. And even if it's conversation, it will cost you something. Um, but when you give something that costs you within this world economy and you expect nothing back, it doesn't go on to like a, a debt chart of that person now owes you something back or that they even manage it diligently. You're not, you're not expecting them to, to behave a certain way with what you give them. Um, it breaks that cycle of kind of fear and accumulation and coercion and control and and always wanting more and more and more because you're just you're just letting go of something um, and then the second way that it offers respite is because in doing that relationally you are gaining relationship um, and it isn't guaranteed to be a fruitful or loving or good relationship could be one that's full of tension and strain and difficulty but even in those difficult relationships you're still gaining a deeper insight into a life that's other than your own and it just changes it alters your perspective again and that provides an opportunity to like to just step off the treadmill for a minute like it's not it's not just me in this world um so you're, you're given something that costs you which is completely anti the normal the normal routine and you're also doing it relationally with someone who's different than you, who's in different circumstances, who's had a different history and sees life in different ways to you. And so it sacrificially breaks that cycle of accumulation and grants you a fresh perspective. And I think it can be a real significant antidote to the kind of the pharaoh economy that we've talked about. And I think it's foundational in the economy of God. It also grounds us in the grit of normal life um, because it can, it's amazing to feed 5,000 people and to have big visions and the VIP event. And like I said, we don't stop doing that. Those things are fantastic. But it's also vital that we love our neighbour. Um, if each of us could get that right, there'd be no need to feed 5,000. So I'm just going to... That's it. I'm going to end with a prayer. Um, I pray, God, that we would receive a deeper understanding of what it means to live according to the economy of God. And that's an economy of abundance, of inclusiveness, of rest and generosity. I pray that we would be generous people, generous outside of our community, but also generous within it. That we would be vulnerable to allow the needs of those around us to leave a mark on us. And through relationship, that we would meet those needs. And Jesus, I pray, as you prayed, that we would be one. Amen. Yeah.